You're listening to Ingenuism's Silicon Valley Examined, where we delve into how the tech industry is helping create progress at the speed of thought. I'm Dom Watkins. With me, as always, is Robert Hendershot. All right, Robert. So, welcome to the show. Morning, Don. Uh, so, we were both watching an interesting TED talk by Mariana Mazzucato. I think that's how you pronounce her name, who um, is famous for writing a book called The Entrepreneurial State. And I wanted to use her kind of way of thinking about things as a jumping off point to think about how you would tackle this kind of issue from an ingenuous perspective. So, just for people who are not familiar, part of what the core of what she argues is that if we look at things like the internet or the iPhone or pharmaceuticals, that breakthroughs come from a a crucial role in those breakthroughs is played by government, not merely in the sense that a lot of people and a lot of economists have argued that government funds basic research, but she thinks that the application of research, the commercialization of it, the government has been intimately involved in these and, and is a really crucial factor enabling us to think outside the box so that it's not just that you need the state for a legal or physical infrastructure, but as she puts it, that the state does and should create and shape mar- markets. And so what we would really aim for is not an antagonistic relationship where it's government versus the private sector, but this idea of public-private partnerships. And that just as you would have you know, venture capitalists expect to get rewarded for the risk that they take on, we want the government to get rewarded for its role in creative risk-taking. Now, before we dive into kind of how you analyze it, I at least want to put up front some of like my reactions to the argument. And in particular, the thing that jumped out at me is that she starts out by asking a question, which I do think is an interesting question. And we've, we've addressed it on some of our writings and I think in an earlier episode, which is like, why are there no European Googles? And what's interesting is that in the talk, she never answers that question, even though that's what she starts out posing. And my reaction is that that actually poses more of a challenge to her thesis than it is her thesis being an answer to that question. Because if you think about Europe, there's they're much bigger on public-private partnerships. And indeed, uh, she gives an example of how a European government does what she recommends in terms of that the government has kind of a certain equity in the projects it helps spearhead or fund or create. And so there's kind of two ideas pushing against each other. It's on the one hand, there seems to be some evidence, or, and certainly she makes a strong claim about the government's role in major innovations. And on the other hand, there doesn't seem, this doesn't seem to be this involvement of government and innovation and, and private sectors, there d- that doesn't seem to be distinctive to the U.S. and certainly not to Silicon Valley. And so as an ingenuous, when you're thinking about like what is the proper role of the state, how do you go about starting to unravel that question? 
I think there's a lot to unpack in the entrepreneurial state, and I do think that that first question of you know where are the uh, European Googles, where are the European Apples, where are the European Facebooks is really important because you have you know, literally hundreds of millions of smart, educated, talented people, uh, and you you want to get as much progress out of that group. You know th- this is. This is part of the elite, and historically, the majority of scientific breakthroughs and discoveries uh, came out of Europe. And so to not have uh, Europe be as productive from an innovation sense, it's a real problem. I mean, it's a challenge. It's an issue that, that is costing us all. You know, we don't know what the European uh, Googles would look like, but we we can safely say that their existence would benefit literally billions of people. And so th- I think that's a really important question. And it gets to the, the, you know, one answer is that Europe isn't doing public partnerships, public-private partnerships correctly, that, that uh, European governments are not taking the correct role in fostering innovation. And you, know, you can make that argument. Uh, I think it's hard to actually back up with data, but it, it's worth evaluating. Uh, I think that focusing on government, though, is just narrowing your vision more than, than you need to. I mean, you, you could ask a lot of questions about uh, what is behind the lack of a European Google? Uh, and a lot of the answers you know, wouldn't even be in the same ballpark as government. I mean, we've talked about failure. We've talked about uh, the rewards that come from, from uh, innovation. And I think that if you want to really answer the, the what I think is the important question is, is how can we start having Googles coming out of Europe, then f- immediately jumping to, well, what's the role of the state and how can the state do its job better is already carving off what is potentially most of the answer. I think that's a really important point. That is the whole setup of the issue is we're trying to think about the goal of promoting innovation and we're just going to start with what's the right relationship between government and the private sector. I think one of the things that we've tried to do is start with looking at innovation that actually takes place. How does it happen? What are the kinds of activities and kinds of processes that are behind it? And what are the things that kind of slow it down and stop it? And then you can build up to an answer of, well, what's the role of government? But government's just an institution. And one of the things that happens when you just start out with private versus public is that you blend a lot of distinctions between institutions, even within those two categories, right? So, for instance, we talk a lot about the difference between large bureaucratic private organizations and the impact that has on people's ability to collaborate, to test out new ideas, to remain flexible, Um from kind of a startup that is, and lots of startups even who are you know testing different approaches and can be quite nimble and at the same time within government there's more and less bureaucratic parts of the organization you know there's some uh, government agencies and organizations that are kind of these small like go out and try a bunch of stuff and see what works particularly you see that you know in defense there's more experimental parts of it that are not governed in the same way that say like medicare is 
and so if we start at the level of these big institutions, I find it really hard to figure out how you would work down to an answer of how to promote innovation versus starting with innovation and kind of working your way up to institutions. Yeah, once you start thinking about institutions, you can, it becomes much more of a continuum and not binary, uh, where you have, you know, what are purely public, we have public-private partnerships, you have regulated monopolies, you have large uh, companies that, you know, devolve, evolve into a, I said devolve, and I kind of mean that, but I mean, literally evolve into a bureaucracy because they have so much to lose from mistakes, all the way down to, you know, a little startup that has really nothing to lose. And you lose all of that granularity if you focus on, on public, um, private as the only characteristics. And at the same time, you know, I think the, the title is both provocative and, and reasonable. Uh, if you are trying to support progress then, and you accept that there is going to be a government, uh, then you would want to ask the question, how can we have an entrepreneurial state? I and mean, it's easy to, to look at the examples of, you know, the, the classic would be the post office, the DMV, uh, of where a state agency is horribly archaic. Uh, although I have to say that um, even before the pandemic, particularly in the pandemic, the DMV in California started to actually provide some online services. But be that as it may, uh, the fact that there are terrible examples of, of what the state does doesn't mean that you shouldn't ask the question, uh, how, how can the state do things better and in, under what circumstances would state involvement actually uh, accelerate progress? But the, I think that's right. But if you were going to do it, if you're going to explore that kind of question, I don't think you can do it in the way that... Um, Muscato does it that is what we get is here's a you know here's the iphone and the government played a role in all of these pieces and uh i should say i'm we're not going to get into does she get the history right and everything like that i think she definitely oversimplifies it but there's a really good um series of kind of factual analyses of the uh, uh of her on these points at a um blog or website nintil n-i-n-t-i-l.com that i found really interesting i don't want to get into that but what i will point out is that there's never a counterfactual that's run so it's well if government hadn't been involved in these areas would the progress have occurred might it have occurred faster there's never any counter evidence of okay well what are examples where government might have slowed down or impeded innovation and so it's there's very much an approach, I think, of stacking the deck, whereas what you would really want is to get the whole lay of the land first and not leap to kind of a, well, here's my conclusion and here's some evidence that seems to support it. Yeah, we're all susceptible to confirmation bias. And, and uh, when you look at things at a very coarse scale, whether it's public-private or it's U.S. versus Europe, you don't get enough obvious distinction that you can really view it through whatever lens you want. Uh, and if you view it th through the lens of ingenuism, then the first thing you would want to do is look at what has been done. Like, where have you seen distinct approaches being taken where you can contrast the approach that, say, NASA has towards developing 
space-going rockets versus the approach that SpaceX has. And you can look at the results and you can look at the differences and you can start to build data about what works and what doesn't, which is the core of ingenuism is, is if there are a lot of different things being tried, we're going to necessarily start learning about what works and what doesn't. And if we allow a positive feedback loop where more recesses go to what's working, then we'll evolve into something that, while it might not be optimal, because we never do know the, the true counterfactual, while it might not be optimal, it is on the path of, of you know, greatest progress that we can observe. And there are there is some work on that. Um, Josh Lerner wrote a book about ten years ago uh, called "The Boulevard of Broken Dreams," and it's a pretty academic book. So I don't know how highly I recommend it for reading material, but it, it's interesting because he really does try and take um, in a particular uh, flavor, which is um, basically Silicon Valley style investment. Try and take a look at where things have been tried, what was tried, and how successful it was. And, you know, there are examples of, of, of pretty good success, and there are examples of clear and absolute failure, you know, where you end up building something uh, that never gets used. Uh, and so that's the first place that, that we'd want to look from an ingenuism perspective. But really, ingenuism is forward-looking. And what we'd want to do is start to try things based on what we know, but also based on where we could learn the fastest. And that would mean small scale, it would mean, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily mean private, but it generally, you generally get small scale and more nimble um, responses to feedback in private companies. So you'd, you'd look at what are the opportunities to learn in what's going on in private companies not just you know U.S. versus Europe, but within the U.S., within Europe, around the world, and then using that, you might try and design some experiments uh, using public agencies and, and say, okay, well, if we know that uh, DARPA produced these things and it more resembles what we would consider an innovative organization uh, for A, B, and C reasons, then we start uh, designing, and this is already happening. Uh, DARPA-like efforts in other areas. So instead of focusing on defense, it might focus on information technology or medical technology or uh, energy. And these are things that are currently happening in Washington, D.C. And they're simultaneously exciting and a little bit uh, daunting because you don't hear anything about the why will these work? What is it that we're building into design that will make it more likely that the investments will be effective in spurring innovation and progress? And how are we going to deal with failure? Because uh, unfortunately, the historical record is that government is either completely intolerant of failure or completely tolerant of failure. And neither of those are a productive relationship to failure. You, you need to be able to try things and have them fail. Uh, and you also need to be able to stop doing things that aren't working. And until you get the right blend of that, and, and everyone struggles for that, from venture capitalists up to Fortune 500 companies, uh, until you get the right mix there, it's very difficult to really to really harness the energy of ingenuism to learn, you know, what's the role of state, what's, how do we design public and private institutions to really support progress, 
and how do we you know build what might be a public part private partnership well see i view it a little bit differently which is that i think the issue you raised with failure is precisely one reason why um we should at least at minimum be quite skeptical of government's role because if we think about how does a organization find the optimal mix of tolerance versus intolerance towards failure you have to have the profit motive guiding you right because the profit motive says yeah i have to be willing to take risks and the profit motive also says that i better not keep tolerating a risk too long whereas if you insulate a project from profit it's not clear how you could ever make that kind of assessment so definitely the profit motive is a good way to build some balance of evaluation. Uh, I don't have any reason to think it's the only way. I think it is the most robust and reliable way because it depends on each individual's incentives. It, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't require that you put in the proper governance system and that you continue to do that or you have the right political economy. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's not, it's not possible. And the... The, I think, legitimate challenge to um, how we think about progress inside of a profit system or even, you know, you, you see it popping up everywhere in the entrepreneurial state is there's just not a uh, easy way to quantify, even though we have to recognize that, um, that this exists and it's massive, but an easy way to quantify uh, what economists call the overall surplus from these innovations. Uh, you know, when you ask, asked at the beginning, where are the European Googles? And I'm like, that's the question. It's because, not because Google's a, a you know, one and a half trillion dollar company. Uh, that is a big deal. And that's how, that's the capitalized value of the expected future profits. Like that gives you a good measure of the impact Google has had. But it pales compared to the impact Google has had on all of our lives. You know, one thing I like to ask, um, you know, when I was teaching this stuff, I'd ask my students or ask people who are interested, is how much would you pay if you had to pay to use all things Google? So if you you were thinking about, you know, I'd have to give up the search engine, I'd have to give up my Gmail, I'd have to give up my Google Maps, I'd have to give all that up. How much would you pay to keep that? And one way to think about it, to, to frame it, is to, to think about uh, giving up your phone, not your smartphone device, but your phone as a device to call people. Uh, you know, you can call anyone in the world at any time. Having a phone is really great, uh, but most people, uh, when push comes to shove, would give up the ability to call people on their phone before they would give up all things Google, because there are lots of other alternatives like messaging that they use just as often or are um, similarly powerful. But that just gives you an idea because how much do you actually pay to have your phone? You're paying $10 a month, $20 a month, $50 a month. And so we're talking about hundreds of dollars a year that the average person would pay to use Google. And that's on billions of people. So we're talking about a number that is somewhere in the trillion dollar range of value for what uh, people would pay to be able to use Google, which is absolutely free to them. And so when we look at the impact of not having European Googles, uh, I don't think we can just look at the profit. We have to look at the overall more 
you know, heuristic picture of progress is that there's a lot of, of upside that's missing when we don't get this right. And, you know, having an entrepreneurial state would be a big plus because I don't think we have one. Um, and, you know, part of what an entrepreneurial state would have to do, just like any entity that's operating in, uh, in innovation is to make sure it didn't violate the core principles of innovation. And, and genuism says, says that's connection, exploration, and a supportive environment where we're still kind of fleshing out what exactly we think a supportive environment is. I mean, that's the really interesting question because if you encourage exploration, you're going to get more innovation. If you create connection, you're going to get more innovation. It's going to have a bigger impact. Uh, but those and those two compound they they magnify each other. But this question of how do you have a supportive environment and what could the state's role be, it's really important. But it can't go back and start to balkanize you know the world and diminish connection, or discourage or or even you know retard exploration, or else you're going to end up with less progress. And that's my, that's personally my biggest fear isn't that uh, you would have a inefficient allocation of resources because you don't have the profit motive and you're using something else that might not be as good, but that you would actually have unintended consequences that would, because the state is um, unlike a company, which, uh, you know, there's more of a voluntary relationship and more alternatives. The state can make mistakes and keep doing them for a long time. We, you know, the U.S. just got out of Afghanistan. Um, if you argue it was a mistake, then you probably argue that we should have gotten out uh, 10 or 15 years ago. But that's not typically how states operate. Now, we could design a state that responded more to feedback and, and you know, could fail, um, what's the right way to put it, gracefully. I think that would be huge in, in more areas than innovation. Well, and I think that's the really important point. I don't think you can make a case for, yeah, this is the positive role of the state without taking very seriously what the risks or downsides are. Because we certainly know from history there's plenty of downsides. So we can take the you know extreme examples of states like North Korea, where you basically eliminate connection, experimentation, and anything resembling a supportive environment. But even if we set that aside, we've talked about, for instance, how there's real evidence to think that government support for nuclear was as much a problem as later government opposition to nuclear. That is, they pushed ahead of technology, they pushed it in a very particular direction rather than a lot of experimentation about the best way to build reactors and so on. And that that has uh, led us to where we are today, where this incredible potential technology is um, vanishing more than it is progressing. And so I would want to see a real contending with the downsides and potential downsides of government encouragement of innovation not to i don't i think the focus on the innovations we've had have had some amount of you know government aid i think that's nowhere near sufficient to have a real view of what it takes um, for government to be supportive of progress yeah, if we look at, at history, we find these examples where progress 
seems to get launched and, and quite dramatically by a strong government initiative, and then it stagnates. It's not just nuclear, it's space. Uh, it, we would have seen the same thing in pharmaceuticals. And if you, if you take that as maybe the canary in the coal mine, you would um, look at what were the fundamental reasons why nuclear, why um, you know, travel to outer space, why these things stagnated. And then, you know, in theory, you would get some uh, idea about what the role of the state is, because it's, it, it's, it's not A or B. There's, if we're looking at it from an ingenuism perspective, uh, you wouldn't want to say uh, there could never be a role of the state because we, we just don't know. Uh, but you also would want to have some guardrails that would keep uh, the state from making the kind of mistakes that were made in nuclear and in space. So I, I, I really agree with what you said, and I'm still really interested in, okay, well, what can we learn? Because... You know, there was a large um, aerospace component to early Silicon Valley. Uh, and, you know, would Silicon Valley have developed exactly the same way without that? Uh, almost certainly not. Uh, would it have ended up in basically the same place? Possibly. So we need to look at more than um, one, one element of successful um, I, 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 it's not exactly an organization, but we'll call it, let's call it a, uh, an organization or maybe an institution. Uh, and, and then also look at more than one unsuccessful. And that's why I think there's, there's been a good start because a lot of people have tried to build Silicon Valley and no one's been quite successful. Uh, and no one tried to build Silicon Valley originally. <laughs> so it happened for reasons other than you know, there being a specific goal. Uh, but there has been a lot of success in mimicking parts of Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, you can you can at least figure out what not to do um, if you're going to uh, violate the what you think was important about the valley's development. But I think at at a more fundamental level, if we are supporting connection, if we're supporting exploration, then we would naturally find out. It just We don't see a lot of that sort of, uh, I'll call it humility. Um, most people have a specific answer that they have already decided, and it's become then just a, how do I convince people to do things my way? Yeah, I mean, the... I mean, I get it because I think it's these are hard questions to answer. And so there's kind of a, a default onto people's priors. Some and some of that is legitimate. Like if you have real principles that you've formed and you're bringing them to bear in this question, I think that's right. But I mean, you talked about confirmation bias, which we're obviously all at risk for. But if you just think about the complexity of the problem. So. I forget exactly what you said that made me think of this, but um, even if we're studying like, you know, what role did government play in things like you mentioned the aerospace industry and how government kind of fueled that and, you know, that unleashed progress. Well, even if we take our actual track record of innovations there's kind of a an assumption buried that that was optimal 
right? Whereas, well, if we had followed a different path, maybe we would have had something just way better altogether, right? It's not, would we have created the same things absent government involvement and at the same pace, but what else would we have created? So it's all of these thought experiments that we can't actually run, but that would really go into assessing what is the ideal setup to promote progress. Does that, did I make that point clear? Yeah, and I absolutely agree. Uh... And I don't want the perfect to be the enemy of the good. Uh, and I'm not at all arguing that we should take the other extreme, uh, because I think that there's a lot of evidence that just throwing uh, government money uh, isn't uh, productive and that there are unintended consequences. It can be pretty severe in um, chilling innovation when you uh, introduce basically politics. Um, at the same time, uh, you know the the recent uh, the recent infrastructure bill I, I think had six and a half billion for an ARPA health program ARPA H uh, that I that I believe the NIH would handle. Uh, you know, six and a half billion is a lot of money, and. I think that it's a totally legitimate experiment given the potential upside from breakthrough research in health. The question is what kind of projects are gonna get funded? How is the money gonna get spent? And then how is the entity, um, what we'll call it the, uh, what we'll call it ARPA-H, how is ARPA-H gonna be uh, evaluated? You know, in advance, you should say, okay, this is what would constitute success without it being uh, too narrow. Uh, you wouldn't want to say, okay, we, if we get a cure for cancer, then good. If we don't, then bad. Um, you might say something like, if you know, there's if there are 25 new companies formed out of this basic research, it's good. Or you might say some, you know, anything that, that would give you a metric that you could go back then and apply so that when you're trying to draw lessons, you have some sense of whether we're evaluating success or a failure. And if we leave it till the end, then we all kind of know how it will, will be. Whatever they did would be um, defined as success. Uh, and I don't see any evidence that, that that's what's being tried. And I, at the same time that, you know, if you're going to spend six and a half billion or maybe we should spend, I don't know, $20 billion and split it among three entities that are very different. Uh, one run by the NIH, one uh, run by a consortium of universities and run, one run by a consortium of venture capitalists. I don't know. I'm just making shit up. The point is that we are spending so much money on these public initiatives that both improving the, the um, entrepreneurialness of the state and learning what works, by learning what works, could have a huge impact. Uh, if we don't do that, you know, I would be an advocate for basically cutting it to zero because uh, if you don't know what you're getting for money you're spending, then you should stop spending it. That, that's not ingenuism, though. Ingenuism would be to learn what works, keep exploring the different options, and be ruthless about stopping what doesn't work and building on what does. Do you see anybody out there advocating for that in a way that you think, uh, unlike, let's say, the, the, 
this case for the entrepreneurial state that you think is actually more sensitive to the kinds of issues you're raising and um, is actually trying to solve this problem? Because I think if you asked anybody, even somebody like me, who's, I mean, for on philosophic principle, I don't want, I want the government basically to be police, military, and law courts. But if, if you set that to the side and just ask people, including me, well, wouldn't you want, so long as government's doing these things, shouldn't we figure out how to do them better? I think they would say yes. But is anybody really kind of pushing um, for a, a, a way to do that that you're aware of and that you think is kind of a good model for how to think about these issues? Not in big countries like the U.S. Uh, or in, you know, obviously not a country, but a union in Europe. Uh, unfortunately, there's a, a link between centralization and these sort of initiatives. And I think that's the weakest part of the entrepreneurial state is that if you can't delink centralized control from these efforts and, you know, that NIH has has whatever uh, track record it has, but it is a large bureaucratic uh, well-defined, already has their processes um, entity. You know, th that sort of institution isn't where you're going to get the experimentation. Uh, where you do, I think, see um, both more effort towards figuring out what works and better results are in smaller organizations or smaller entities. Uh, so you, you end up seeing success in these, these types of efforts in places like Singapore. Um, and you don't see this success in, like this in larger entities, including China, who's you know, building a moderate economy, but not you know, in a, a – it's using quality and not uh, – it's using quantity and not quality. Uh, so I think that uh, – it's you ask a really good question, and from if we just talk about the U.S., what the the place that would be the biggest lever would be to impact that question of not should we be spending six and a half billion or twenty billion on uh, exploring new um, ideas in healthcare innovation, but how are we going to spend that? And more importantly, how are we going to make sure that the next 20 billion, whether it's 10 years down the road, um, how are we going to make sure that that's done better? Because you know, the place that people usually point to, it, it usually is related in somehow to defense. And one thing defense is really good at is um, you know, spending money uh, without particular care about the cost but getting things done. And, and it's also a place where uh, all of the work is in an ideal world never used. So all the weapons you develop, all the weapons you build, all the strategies you come up with, everything in an ideal world, you don't have to use it. Uh, and that's just not the case in other areas. So it's very easy for defense to give up um, whatever happens inside uh, to give up the uh, the ARPANET. Uh, it's much harder to have the conversation of, of what should the NIH get out of whatever comes out of ARPA-H. 
And that worries me because you already hear it in the um, in the entrepreneurial state is, well, what about the reward to the public institution? Well, the reward would be if we cure cancer, we're all going to benefit. And that doesn't mean that, I, that there's some moral argument that there shouldn't be any uh, public equity in the uh, eventual companies that are curing cancer. It's just a more, it's a complication that distracts us from the real benefit. And this, you know, we saw this over and over in 2020 where you know, there would be a distraction from the real goal, which would be to get a vaccine and get it into as many people as possible. How much people were going to charge for it, who was going to be making it, who was going to get it first. Those are all questions that are hard to ignore, but they are secondary compared to the actual tremendous global benefits that can come out of, of these discoveries. Yeah, and I think not to go on this too much because I don't know that there's that much of a support for this idea, but the idea of like, well, hey, the government helped spearhead it. It needs some financial skin in the game. Again, it's reifying government and treating it as this actor with incentives and, oh, it will work harder if it gets profits or something like that versus, um, I mean, the reason that profits work in venture capital is because the individuals who are making the decisions are going to profit. But if you think about like the way that governments actually operate, it's not bought, like that's not an incentive system. And the given that the profits wouldn't be going to the individuals involved, I don't think would be a useful incentive system. Um, I mean, the military and defense is a good uh, example because um, there you see kind of the best incentives of government, which is like, we don't want people to kill us and kill our citizens. And so we're going to try everything we can to make sure we stay at the forefront of potential military technologies. And notice that it's the we want to be at the cutting edge of techno technological capability, not of economically viable technologies right and that's the insensitivity to cost right it's um a i mean this is sort of what i think the best argument that's leveled for ha government having some involvement in research in in the end i don't my personally don't think it holds but it's it's a it's a strong argument which is um you discover a lot of cool things when you're not confined by cost and aiming at cost yeah you waste a lot too right? You've developed a thousand technologies that are expensive and don't work and can't be scaled and so on. Um, but you're able to try things out just for the sheer engineering feat of it, because, it, you know, in a military context, it's not, uh, it doesn't matter if it's uneconomic, if your uh, opponent can just blow you out of existence uh, with a bomb that you can't defend against. So I forget exactly um, where I was going with that point, but it was it's basically the, um, the the idea that we have to really think about the actual incentives that government faces and the positives and negatives of that. And I think you can't mirror from, you know, what the incentives are for a private company to, oh, if we just match that in government, it'll have the same incentives, because I don't think that's true. Well, that's something that, that's probably discoverable. Uh, because there's the other effect, which is nobody who's smart and ambitious and talented, I shouldn't say nobody, but um, not very many people uh, of that 
quality are going to want to go and work at the post office because we all know that the post are going to work at the DMV. We all know, you know, who goes there. So it becomes a there's a certain element of self-fulfilling to that. And at you know, the same time, I have a cousin who works at JPL and, and works on the Mars rover. And you know, he's super smart and he could be doing something else and making more money, but this is something he's passionate about and it's high status. It's really, it's really cool, not just for him personally, but you know, for his family and uh, even for his future career. And so there, there does have to be some element of it works for the right people to get into a public position or a public-private partnership. Um, but I, I do think this is discoverable because we're starting to see, and it's relatively recent, but we're starting to see more of these ARPAs, right? ARPA H is is the new um, NIH. We're going to take moonshots and see what comes out of it. Um, I know there was one for energy. I think there was one for homeland security, uh, and I know that they're talking about one for climate. There's there's all of these new entities being created to mimic DARPA and to, to push money out into um, you know risky but potentially high upside ventures and given that the upside of certain things is just goes way beyond how, what you can capture in the private uh, context uh, you know COVID vaccines is the obvious one the COVID vaccines is going to generate tens of billions of profits uh, and maybe even in the end, a hundred billion of profits. But it was clearly worth an order of magnitude, maybe two order of magnitudes more than that, versus the the world of no COVID vaccines. So, I'm in favor of trying these things as long as they are um, they're committed to learning what works and and building on what works and quitting what doesn't. Uh, and that they are, they stay inside the guardrails of ingenuism. And, and what I like about the ARPA, you know, shoveling money out the door, is that it, it tends to build on connection and definitely build on exploration and experimentation. So if we are going to do anything, if, if we are going to look for where is the entrepreneurial state, I would go, and it's full circle to where you started, I would go to these smaller uh, efforts and it's hard to think of $10 billion as small, but it definitely is small in the context of both what the state does and what the upside is if this were to be effective. Uh, to, to go to small institutions, small organizations, small amounts, learn as quickly as we can, and discover, you know, is there a way that the state can be entrepreneurial and is there a way that they can contribute to progress and not generally just be an anchor? Thanks, Robert. We will uh, not be here next week, but we will be back the week after that. Best way to stay in contact, as always, is to go to ingenuism.com and sign up for our weekly Substack newsletter. Talk in two weeks.